see you all here this morning. Uh, for those of you I haven't yet met, <coughs> uh, my name's Alon. I've uh, been attending here for about three years and it's a real pleasure to share the word with you this morning. I want to ask you a question. Have you ever thought about buying shares in the kingdom of God? Rumours have it that it hasn't been performing well recently. There's a few concerns about infighting and factions. A couple of key employees have had to leave for one reason or another. The biggest concern, however, is that the market is dwindling. Not many people are interested in religion these days. They don't feel a a spiritual need. And there's numerous other large competitors in the marketplace. Would you risk investing in the kingdom of God? Will the kingdom of God deliver? Maybe you should opt for some sort of balanced investment strategy. Invest a little bit in the kingdom and maybe invest in something a little more safe as well. I hope you realise that I'm being a bit tongue-in-cheek, but the question needs to be asked, what is the future for the kingdom of God? Today we continue our series on the book of Mark, and we'll be looking at a number of parables where Jesus explains kingdom realities in earthly terms. Our minds are so ignorant of the things of God. I wonder if we might pause and pray that God might help us to understand these parables and the implication. Sovereign King enthroned in heaven, let us this day understand your word. Help me to explain it. Help us all to grasp it and hold it tightly. Guard the teaching of your word. We pray that anything that I say that deviates from your truth, the truth, might quickly fall to the ground and might not be heard. Mighty King, we pray that you and you only might be glorified today and that you might be enthroned in our hearts. Amen. Jesus continues his ministry in the region of Galilee. His ministry continues to be very popular. Throngs of people are coming, travelling great distances to see him. Nevertheless, a time will come when the crowds will disappear. Opposition has already arisen from the Pharisees, from the Herodians, the scribes, even from his own family. What will become of his ministry? Will it leave a lasting legacy? As the crowds gather, Jesus again takes to the water and picks up on one of his favourite themes, the kingdom of God. Jesus here provides us with four parables. Now, before we get started, it's worth noting that an actor in a parable, like the mustard seed, is a bit like an actor in a Hollywood movie. If they play in another movie, they can play a different character. And so, elsewhere, Jesus says, if you have faith like a mustard seed, here he says, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Elsewhere, he uses it to teach us a lesson about faith. Here he uses it to teach this lesson about the kingdom of God. Um, So as we read through, you'll be familiar with some of the things that Jesus uses, and perhaps from different parables, and it's just worth remembering that they can change, even between the four parables we're going to look at today, some of them will change. Um, And just be aware they can play different roles. Okay, let's get started. There's going to be three parts to today's sermon. In part one, we consider the pursuit of Jesus. In part two, we consider the parable of the sower and the soils in a bit more detail. And in part three, we consider the kingdom, starting with the pursuit of Jesus. Today's passage raises a big question that you might have already picked up on. During his earthly ministry, 
Jesus called people to come and follow him. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus taught. No one comes to the Father except through me. Most of the scripture should come up on the screen um, with the scripture reference, if I forget to say it. And now we have people thronging to Jesus. Jesus tells them a parable, but its meaning is hidden from them. He explains it only to a select few. And then when evening comes, reading from verses 35 and 36, do all the people leave following Jesus? No, only a select few. What we see here is not Jesus' inability to explain the lesson to the crowd, rather his intention to conceal the lesson from the crowd. And we ask ourselves the question, why? It's a difficult question, and I want to make four observations. One, as a general rule, Jesus desires to be heard and understood. Jesus declared, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. God desires to reveal himself to his created people. Jesus, God incarnate, is the climax of this revelation. We read in the opening words of Hebrews, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son or by his son. If God did not, in a general sense, want to reveal himself, then why not skip the painful incarnation altogether? But Jesus has come as the incarnate God-man, and he's come to preach. Earlier in Mark, we read Mark 1.15, and Sunrise Kids, this is one of your memory verses, so feel free to repeat it with me if you remember it. Mark 1.15, the time has come. Now, there's not many kids here today. They've all gone out. He, Jesus, said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. He has come to preach. Jesus now travels the country proclaiming the kingdom of God. He is the sower of the first parable, and even as he speaks it, he is fulfilling it as he is sowing the seed, desiring a harvest. The second observation, Jesus goes to great lengths to warn us to be ever so careful how we hear, because those that disregard the revelation given to them will lose even that glimmer of light that they did have. This is the take-home point of the second parable. Let me read it. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed, and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Who is the lamp? Many of us would be more familiar with Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. You, i.e. his followers, are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under the basket, but on a stand. But this isn't the Sermon on the Mount, this is the Sermon in a Boat. Remember, the object can change. In this sermon, as Jesus addresses the crowd, the context with what he's saying is suggestive, and the Greek grammar is supportive that when Jesus refers to the lamp, as it reads in the Greek, he is referring to himself. He is the lamp 
brought into the world, not to be put under a basket, but paraded in full view, he has come to reveal to the world the kingdom of God. But this parable is immediately followed with a warning. Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For uh, to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So Jesus starts with a listen up in verse 3. He then periodically calls out through his teaching, he who has ears to hear, let him hear, i.e. keep listening. At the end of today's scripture we read, with many such parables he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. And in the middle we have this most pertinent warning not to treat lightly the illumination we have received. If you scoop deep into that which God has revealed to you about himself, then still more will be given to you. But if you do not even treasure the revelation that you have been blessed with, well then even that light will be taken from you and you'll be left in the dark. Observation three. Observation one, Jesus comes to reveal. Observation two, Jesus warns us fervently to be careful how we hear because if we do not value it, it will be taken from us. Observation three is not conclusive, um, and I'd, I'd like to offer it tentatively, but observation three is that there could be a problem with this crowd. I'll explain. Many of them have travelled a long way, and it's likely that some of them have potentially even travelled for days on foot. And now they press in on one another as they seek to get closer to Jesus, and we think to ourselves, doesn't this demonstrate their pure heart and zealous devotion? No. Because it is possible to seek Jesus and yet not seek him at all. In Mark 1, we read of Jesus abandoning a crowd who sought him merely for miracles of healing. In John chapter 6, he confronts a crowd who seek him merely because he fed them. Now, what I'm about to say is an argument from silence. So again, I offered it tentatively, but it's interesting that though the crowd commits such time and energy to come to Jesus... Yet when Jesus sits down and starts teaching them and they do not understand, nowhere do we read that they pressed him for an explanation. Later, the disciples ask him privately for an explanation. It is an argument from silence. But we've seen previously that uh, the crowds have often sought him for the wrong motives. Why had they come? Maybe for healing, maybe for wisdom, for a difficult situation, maybe for counselling, for a strained relationship, Maybe they wanted Jesus to reform society. And Jesus sits down and starts talking of a nebulous kingdom. It's all very interesting, Jesus, they might have thought. But it's not really why I've come. When are you going to get to the good stuff? We ask ourselves the question, how many in the crowd are pious enough to recognise that their biggest problem is their separation from God and exclusion from his kingdom? And they need to listen up. Perhaps the most telling thing about the crowd, however, is the way Jesus chooses to use a prophecy from Isaiah to justify and explain his use of parables to conceal the truth from them. Approximately 700 years before Jesus, God was speaking to Isaiah. God describes a people recalcitrant in their sin. For generations he has sought to heal them and for generations they've wandered astray and rejected him as king. He has warned them, but they've taken no notice. 
Reading from the book of Isaiah, 52, uh, 65, sorry. All day long I have held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good and pursue their own imaginations, a people who continually provoke me to my very face. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah receives his prophetic commission as follows. Isaiah receives a vision from God and he sees God enthroned in all his glory in the temple. He hears the seraphim calling out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And God says, Whom shall I send? And Isaiah cries out, Here am I, send me. And then God says, Let's read it. Reading from Isaiah uh, 6, 9 to 12. And he said to me, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places in the midst uh, are many in the midst of the land. Isaiah's commission is not a commission to evangelize the lost or restore the backsliding. Isaiah's commission is to pronounce the final judgment on a people who have continued to reject and scorn God despite his efforts to restore them. They have not heeded the revelation that has been given to them. And it is a tragedy, but now, in a sense, even that revelation will be taken from them. From the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And yet we see these people, interestingly, ostensibly were seeking God, at least at a surface level, but without sincerity. Reading from Isaiah 29.13, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honour me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. And again from Isaiah 58, starting from verse 1, Declare to my people their transgressions, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. God then proceeds to detail their transgression and the true state of their devious hearts and to convict them of their superficial piety. Why are you here this morning? There are many other places you could be. You've come here voluntarily and so did the people at the shore of the lake. But many of them, sad to say, missed the main event that day. Do you like to sing? You probably won't go home disappointed. Do you like a good speaker? You probably will go home disappointed. Do you enjoy good company? I love Sunday mornings. I look forward to Sunday mornings and coming for the company. But friends, there is a better reason to come to church, and if we don't grasp it, then we will be missing the main event. 
Have you perhaps come because you're in need? Many by the edge of the lake who listened to Jesus were in desperate need. Are you physically unwell, emotionally in distress? Is there a troubled relationship in your life? I am so glad that you have come. Please share your troubles with us. Let us practice Christian love towards you. Let us together bring your burdens before the Lord in prayer. But even then, there is a better reason still to come to church. There is a deeper healing here for those who seek it, a healing we all desperately need, the invitation of the kingdom, the salvation of our souls. Please hear me now. Churches can be full of people who come for the mere crumbs. Year after year, turning up for pennies when the riches of the kingdom are on offer. And we ask the question, why are you here? Are you seeking Christ himself? Do not leave today without feasting on the bread of life. We'll move on to the parable of the sower and the soils. The parable has traditionally been called the parable of the sower. Of late, some people have referred to it as the parable of the soils, uh, correctly noting that the variable is the soil. There are four different types of soil, and we learn about the corresponding end result for each. The more traditional title, nevertheless, reminds us of the importance of the sower. The sower is Jesus Christ. He comes sowing the word, spreading the gospel. We today are both a product of his ministry and we follow in the footsteps of his ministry. The parable accordingly helps us to understand ourselves and the ministry we are called to. I want you for a moment to imagine that you're one of the disciples sitting in the boat with Jesus. Your heart has been seized by his kingdom calling. You desire, you long to see his kingdom come. You don't exactly know what that looks like, but you long to see it nonetheless. You feel the warm sun on your back and the gentle rise and fall of the boat. And you watch in amazement. At the shoreline, there the crowd starts and it stretches back up the bank. Off to the right, off to the left, there are people everywhere. And there Jesus sits, teaching with power and authority. Are you feeling optimistic? Your Messiah has come. Surely things are just going to get better and better. Surely the movement will grow in numbers and in strength. And in no time at all, we'll probably see Jesus enthroned in Jerusalem. Jesus is the sower and he is sowing the word. And what a job he's doing. The word is literally going out left, right and center and reaching thousands but of all those that the disciples see arrayed before them, this parable warns them, this parable warns us that only a few will bear fruit. They are not all good soil. For some, the word will have barely entered into their ears before Satan steals it away. Starting with the first soil, that of the path, know that for some, the message of the gospel will never take root. This is not a call to give up on someone you don't, uh, who you feel is too hard. If anything, the parable encourages us to continue our efforts to reach all. The sower doesn't just throw the seed on the good soil, he throws it everywhere, including the hard-trodden path. 
Keep praying, keep speaking the word. But if you see someone's life come and go, your prayers for them unanswered, your perseverance seemingly unrewarded, don't be surprised. Your prayer has not escaped the notice of your God. But know that God has warned us in advance that this is how it will be for some. The tragedy of a life that rejects Christ is real. Don't hear me otherwise. There is grief and grief is appropriate and Jesus himself grieves. We read of him grieving over Jerusalem when they, when he rejects, when they reject him. But know that this rejection does not take God by surprise. His plans will not be thwarted. In what is a great mystery, even over the very act of rejection, he is sovereign. Some seed falls on rocky soil. If your soil is only an inch thick and full of shale, well then an inch of rain is going to be more than enough to saturate it. And the seed will sprout quickly and it will look healthy. But as soon as trouble comes, it will wither. We shouldn't be disheartened if those who initially turn to Christ with apparent vigour then quickly fall away when things get difficult. The kingdom is not failing. We grieve their loss, but the kingdom continues. For those of you who are new to the faith, I think this is also a warning to let the word of God penetrate deep into your life. Let it sink its roots in. Read it, ponder it, pray over it, and be changed by it. Otherwise, when trouble and persecution comes, your faith will wither. Some seed falls among thorns, and I want to examine this one in a bit more detail as I believe it's very pertinent for us today. I see here today many people for whom the seed of, the seed of faith sprouted many years ago, even decades ago. You may well be able to recall some blistering hot days that your faith endured, why? Because your root is deep. And now from the soil of your life, you boast a respectable plant. You have solid roots below and green foliage above. Your belief is real. Your doctrine is orthodox. Your foundation is secure. Now your plant. Your plant is a little shaded at times. It's inevitable, you know. You do live a busy life. There's a lot on your plate right now. Or agriculturally speaking, there's a lot on your plot. If you're, sorry, is your life producing a crop for the kingdom? There are roots and there are leaves, but is there a crop? Are you growing in Christian virtue, fervent in God-centered worship, earnest in prayer and engaged in kingdom purpose? My plant is doing okay, so you say, but there are other plants that I must tend to as well. These take some of the water below and some of the sun above. Circumstances as they are, it's just a little much to be expecting the seed of the gospel to be producing a crop in my life right now. It's just not the season for it, some might say. But, oh, look at these leaves. There are quite a few leaves, aren't there? If this is you, I want to warn you that you are not a foliage plant. God's intention for your life is not just to know the word, speak in Christian platitudes and turn up on Sunday. Ain't nobody making bread from lawn clippings, guys. You are a grain crop. God's purpose for your life is that you might bear fruit. 
and remember your days are short. Some plants are there year after year after year, not grain crops. They grow, they seed, they die. Or if you don't tend them, they grow and they die. Life is busy, I get that. But don't let the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things choke your faith. I need to worry about this or that right now, you say. A little extra coin to put towards a home loan or school fees or a nest egg, you say. This is a great opportunity. I've always wanted to do such and such. I need a little me time, you say. But is it preventing your faith from bearing fruit? I get this wrong. I get this wrong all the time and I stand guilty. It's hard. But Jesus shoots straight. Worry, greed and passion will rob your life of spiritual productivity. Call it what you like. Administrative responsibilities, social obligations, career requirements, financial planning. Worry, greed and passion often masquerade. Is your life producing fruit? Be on your guard against worry, greed and pride. And when you see it, call a thornbush a thornbush and cut it out. Pull it up by the roots and burn it. And make space for the word of Jesus to flourish in your life. Let your life bear a crop 30, 60, 100 times what was sown. We're going to move on to consider the kingdom. At the start I asked if you would ever consider buying shares in the kingdom of God. And I suspect your financial planner wouldn't recommend such. You see, Christianity is dying out, or so we're told. Sociologists have been documenting the situation in the US for some time and the steady demise of the church, they say. In the UK, the situation has a bit more clarity. By the year 2067, Christianity in the UK will be, and I quote, statistically invisible, or so writes Damien Thompson in the influential Spectator magazine. In Australia, the situation is a little bit more ambiguous. In 2015, the ABC ran an article entitled, Is Christianity Dying Out? Don't count on it. So far, so good, I thought. Um, what the author, a professing Christian, goes on to say is that Christianity is not dying out. It's evolving and reinventing itself and leaving behind its moralising past. What was exactly meant by these terms was not ever specifically spelt out, but at the end of the article I felt vaguely uneasy, like Christianity might not be dying out, but authentic Christianity is. What is the future for the kingdom of God? Are you seeking the kingdom of God? If you throw your all in for the kingdom of God, what will be your lot in 10 or 20 or 30 years' time? Jesus elsewhere says that the kingdom of God is like treasure buried in a field, and when you find it, you sell all you have to get it. If you sacrifice all in the pursuit of the kingdom of God, what will you be when that very kingdom is in tatters? Friends, their predictions are bleak. What can we do to help the kingdom of God? And I read starting from verse 26 from Mark 4 again. Okay. 
And he said, The kingdom of God is if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. The prosperity of the kingdom of God is dependent on God. God inaugurated the coming, sorry, God inaugurated the kingdom with the coming of Christ and he will consummate the kingdom with the second coming of Christ. God fostered and spread the early church through the power of his spirit and today he continues to win hearts and minds to himself again through the work of his spirit amongst us. To be sure, he uses us in his plans. He honors us with opportunities for service. He calls us to spread the seed of the gospel. Note that the sower in this parable is not Jesus. No, if anything, he's a mildly ignorant sort of fellow. Seemingly, he's good for nothing more than casting seed to the ground. Who here today, if I gave you a bag of seed, could not reach your hand in, grab a fistful and throw it to the ground. The point of this parable is that independent of our activity, whether we sleep or we rise, and in spite of our ignorance, the power of God flourishes the seed of the gospel and it grows by itself. You do not command the rains. You do not give source to the light of the sun. How can you make seed grow? You and I, we don't even understand the the amazing design of our creator whereby a tiny grain, seemingly dead, can suddenly spring to life and start to reach for the sky. It is the power of God that grows the kingdom. So often our simple minds turn to worldly ways to advance the kingdom. We need more money or influence or power, we think. Let me tell you, that the kingdom of God was not affected by the global financial crisis. Its treasuries never run dry. They are never empty. The kingdom of God does not need the endorsement of celebrities or athletes or the influences of society. And the kingdom of God never suffers defeat at the polling booth. God is building his kingdom. Friends, do not be afraid to sacrifice all for the treasure you have found. The prospect of the kingdom is not bleak. Those who make such predictions merely evidence their ignorance as to the true source of the kingdom's power. In the life of the church, and in your own life in particular, a harvest is made possible, and it's made possible because of the transforming power of God. Now some of you might be asking, the kingdom began in obscurity, and it seems as if nothing much has changed. That's a very good observation, and take a look around yourselves today. We sure aren't a royal bunch, and this certainly isn't a palace. The kingdom of God is not coming in worldly prominence. No, but the kingdom of God is breaking into this world as Christ wins hearts and minds of people, the subjects of the kingdom, back to their rightful king. He wins them over from rebellion to submission and worship to the Lord God Almighty. And in this way, the dominion of God is being reasserted over his rebellious creation. And in this way, the parable of the mustard seed is being fulfilled. 
From such a small beginning, we have colossal growth. That which began with a few Galileans has now spread to every continent on earth. There is much still to be done. The mustard plant has not yet reached its full height. As Jesus says, reading in Matthew 24, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. When you consider the kingdom, do not consider it fragile or risky. It grows by the power of God and will continue to grow until it has spread through all the earth. And one day, every knee will bow. In closing then, I want to remind us that the kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of God is at hand, veiled in obscurity perhaps, and nevertheless around the world it advances not in the corridors of power and influence, but in the hearts of men and women who are convicted of their sin and sedition and fall to their, na- fall, fall to their knees exclaiming, Forgive me, my king. The soul has gone out to sow the word, and you have heard that word. Be very careful how you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Do not resist the word, but let it send its roots deep into your life. Uproot the weeds. I'll say it again. Worry, greed, and passion will rob your life of spiritual productivity. Perhaps you are concerned that God can't do anything with your life, that you're a failed crop and useless to the kingdom. I want you to remember that the seed doesn't grow by your strength. No, the seed grows by the power of God, and he is able to produce a crop in your life. Commit your ways to God, And then wait patiently to see the miracle of his transforming power at work in your life. Finally, when you feel as if the world has become more corrupt than ever, you see evil to the right and to the left, behind and in front, remember that the kingdom of God continues. Do not be afraid to throw in your everything for it. The kingdom advances by the power of God. 2,000 years ago, that power, against our understanding, rose Christ from the dead. And today, that power, against our understanding, continues to rise his church. It is the power of God that wins souls to salvation, turns sinners into saints, sanctifies the saints, and advances the gospel. It is the power of God that will see the gospel continue to prosper and grow and spread until it reaches every corner of the world. May it be so. Friends, we now come to the Lord's Supper.